Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to Ephesians chapter 3 that was read. Next Sunday, Lord's willing, will be our Thanksgiving message. And then we go into the Christmas holidays. And I am preparing four different messages dealing with this season, which I hope will help us to prepare for the celebration of uh, the... And I, I, I always cringe when I say this. Uh, remember that the 25th of December is the day we celebrate Christ's birthday. It's not the day he was born. I just want to... to I, I come from a British country, and the Queen's birthday is in June, but we used to celebrate it in April. Didn't mean that she was born in April. That just was the appropriate time to celebrate it. So I want to say that uh, the 25th is the day that has been chosen, but it is not the day because you have some people that will say, you say Jesus was born on the 25th, and then they go into a long tirade of history. And uh, I have, I want to say, last year we were, at, Lois and I were at our grandchildren's uh, for the celebration of Christmas, and uh, so we sat around to read the Christmas story, and James asked LJ if he would read the Christmas story, and he said, do I have to? <laughs> and so um, James says, yes, we're going to pray first. He said, can't we open the presents first and then pray afterwards? <laughs> I love that, see? Um, and we, we are affected by that. I went into Walmart this past week, and I was just surrounded with Christmas music, Christmas wrappings, Christmas, and I thought, my word, it's not even Thanksgiving. And they're already reminding us of it. So I trust that you will come next week to hear what Thanksgiving means to God. Ephesians chapter 3 was read to us already this morning, and I hope you have your Bibles, and you will turn there and listen to God's Word. Let us pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation in our hearts be acceptable to you, our Father, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. There are three, more than three perhaps, but there are three main reasons why people do not believe in God. Like I said, there are a lot more, but they come under the category of, you will find them, you know, here's, here's, Reason number one, and there are things under that. Reason number two, there are things under that. Reason number three, things under that. But I want to just identify three this morning in preparation for this text. Number one reason why people do not believe in God is intellectual reasoning, rational reasoning. They can't put two and two together and it comes up with faith. For them, that does not make any sense at all. I will not believe in anything I can't see, I can't prove, and I can't put in a test tube. And so they go on and on and on trying to say why they can't believe in God. Number two is personal. They have experienced something in their life affecting everything about them. Perhaps they lost a loved one. Perhaps a child died in birth. Our friend where our daughter and her husband are ministering, 
two years ago, February, she was pushing a baby carriage across the road and a big truck came and hit and killed them, killed the baby immediately. It, it, she has not overcome that. Just investigating about her a couple of weeks, a week ago or so while we were visiting with our daughter. Personal reasons. Lots of people have personal reasons why they don't believe in God. The next is social reasons. Social reason. And the social reason goes like this. I can't see how God could allow... And then they put 101 things after that. I said before, there are more than three reasons, but you will find these three reasons at the very core of each reason given. What you will find with those three reasons is this. If there's one thing I cannot take about God, is why did he make a world in which people suffer? What a question. The intellectual man says, I don't see how God could do that. And because he, see, he can't see how, he feels that then God does not exist. The social man says the same thing. The personal need says the same thing. Now I want you to listen to this. I couldn't find the author of this, but listen to it please. It is not science that has led me to doubt the purpose of God. It is the state, the state of life. It is the pitiful, unending struggle for existence among the nations. It is the feeling that there is something demonic in the heart of everything. Everything which is working against them. That there is a radical twist in the very constitution of the universe which will always defeat hope. Purpose? Look at the world. That settles it. Purpose? Are you telling me that it is possible to live in a world and believe in a God who has some purpose in suffering? Look with me in the text. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 11. And it, the text reads this way. This, that means what he's going through, as well as why he's going through it, and what is the purpose behind it. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now if you were here before, you know that we've been going through this book. And Paul is talking about his suffering. He's in prison. He has been in prison now for almost four years. There is no good reason why he is there, humanly speaking, personally speaking. But all of a sudden, he's going to unveil for us the fact that there is, there is purpose in suffering. You don't want it. I don't want it. One of the things I usually do when I prepare my messages he said, I will, after I'm finished with everything, I will take it and I will say to God, this is an offering to you. Please remove any error. Replace it with your truth. Please make this word speak to those for whom you have prepared it, beginning with me. And then this is a part of the prayer that I almost, I'm almost reluctant to pray. 
And then shape me into the message I'm supposed to deliver. Shape me into the message I'm supposed to deliver. I, I, I kid you not. As I said that Friday morning, I thought, what if? <laughs> what if God shapes me into the message, purpose in suffering that I'm supposed to deliver? It, it was a prayer that I had to Are you willing to pray that? That if something happens to you, God has a purpose for it. So let's look at it then. The first thing we learn from this text, verse 11, is that there is a scene, there's a scene, S-C-E-N-E, behind suffering. This is in accordance with his eternal purpose. This is in accordance with his eternal purpose. The word purpose means to show something that has been hidden. A design. So Paul is saying that there is a strategy behind suffering. It is not random. It isn't something that just happens out of the blue. Suffering happens because behind what is going on are the divine design that sometimes or most of the times we are not able to see. We're not able to understand. But what we know is that this is not something that has happened by chance in my life. It is according to his purpose which he planned before there was time. So the text is telling us that even before we were born, even before the Apostle Paul was born, in the design of God, he was going to be in prison with the knowledge of God. Psalm 139 tells us that he has written in his book all our days even when there was none of them. And so here Paul is, is saying that there is a divine hand, there's a the divine mind behind what's going on in my life. Acts chapter 15 verse 18 says this, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of time. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of time. Therefore, what, what he's saying, that while he was sitting there for four years, God was not saying, I wonder what I'm going to do. God was not saying, oh, look at what those people are doing to Paul. No, nothing in your life or mine, my friends, takes God by surprise. Nothing happens to you or to me that we have to wonder if God took a vacation as it, when it relates to me. I can't explain that all to you, but I'm going to tell you what. You see, if I'm an atheist and I suffer, to whom can I turn? You have no one to turn to. G.K. Chesterton says it's like looking into a mirror and not seeing any reflection. <laughs> but if I'm a Christian, I know that there is a divine mind and hand behind what I'm going through, that I'm not alone in it. That I'm not a subject of chance. That the devil didn't get the upper hand on God and therefore I am suffering now. There's a remarkable story we find in the ninth chapter of the book of John. 
The disciples are walking with Jesus and they saw a man who was blind. And the disciples asked the philosophical question, who sinned, this man or his parents? And the answer is, <laughs> the answer is one we don't like. Listen to what the answer Jesus gave. Neither sinned. Neither. Neither the man, nor his parents. And I, I, if I had time, I'd go into, into this whole business of what you get in this life is because of what you did in previous life. It's a tragedy, isn't it? But Jesus said, this sickness is for God to demonstrate his glory. It's, it's, it's like saying, this, this blind man is blind. He was born this way. Because in the mind of God, there is a purpose in it which will benefit the man and which will bring glory to God. So that, that even though the parents didn't understand it, he didn't understand it, the community didn't understand it, yet Jesus gives us the assurance that there is a strategy behind our suffering. But I want to see the strategist. Who is behind this? Is it devils or angels? It is some kind of, of as demonic, as, as this writer said, there is some kind of a demonic scheme in, in the whole universe that just when I think things are going to go right, it goes wrong. Look again in the text, if you please. He said this in verse 11. This is in accordance with his. Who is his? It's God's which he brought about in Christ, so that in Jesus Christ we see the whole design of God in human suffering. First of all, we see the Son of God suffering. God is outside of the Son who is suffering. He gave up his eternal prerogative to come into our world, and he suffers with us. And in his suffering, he knows something of the divine design of God so that the last thing he did when he was dying was to say this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He knew that he was not an object of chance. The Father was there. Now I'm not going to deal with this this morning because we'll get to it later on. But I want to say four things about God that we must know when we're going through sufferings. Four things. It's in the Bible. First, God is love. 1 John 4, 8. God is love. Now please understand, my friends, that the love of God does not keep us from difficulties. The love of God sustains us in difficulties. God is love. The little children's prayer. When our boy was, was little and we taught him to pray when he was having his food. So he went to the neighbors and they were, he was having lunch with their boy and he wanted to pray before they ate, <laughs> which they didn't always do or didn't do, right, really. And he prayed the children's prayer. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. <laughs> and we say this a little children's prayer. 
But my friends, that's not just a children's prayer. The Bible does teach that God is great. Ephesians 3.20 says this, Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or think. That's a great God. He's great. God is good. Psalm 105. Mark chapter 10 verse 18. The Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why call me good? There's only one good who is God. And therefore if you're calling me good, you're calling me God. Good. God is great. God is good. God is love. But I want to say one more thing. God is wise. Jude 25. The only wise God. Do you know, my friends, that God is the only designer that never had to correct something? That God is the only designer who never had to adjust something? A.W. Tozer puts it so beautifully. He said the wisdom of God means that God does not have to correct anything because he didn't do anything wrong in the first place. That's the, tra that, that, the, the strategist behind suffering for the Christian is God. The strategist in the suffering of the Christians is Jesus Christ. And so in the Father and in the Son, we have the designer of the things we go through, using them as well as doing them. And so the scene behind suffering is a strategy of God and God himself and the Son, the strategist. Secondly, a sanctuary for sufferers. A sanctuary for sufferers. How do people deal with with suffering. Some people get angry at God. Again, G.K. Chesterton puts it so beautifully. He said, the tendency of human beings is that when they have difficulties, they turn away from God. But in heaven's name, to whom? If you say, I don't want anything to do with God, who do you turn to? You turn to yourself when you can't even handle a little thing like this. What, where do we go? I want you to see verse 12. Verse 12. Look at it. In whom we have boldness and confident access. Access speaks of going through something to somewhere, to someone. And the first thing the apostle says, for those four years in prison, he was doing something. Uh, by the way, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, you will notice that he didn't say, I'm the, I, am the, I am the prisoner of Caesar or Rome. He says, I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Who has me here? I am I'm on, on a his spell. I am under his authority. I am, I am sustained by his power, by his grace. I'm a prisoner of Christ. And when I'm a prisoner of Christ, my friends, I am supplied with all that is needed to stay four years in jail. I'm saying that standing here. I hope I can say it if I had to do it in reality. 
the facility of communication. It means that we have the privilege, wherever we are, whatever the situation is we're going through, we have the privilege of going directly to God immediately. I love, I love the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in the king's palace. He was the king's cupbearer, which means that everything the king ate and drank, he had to eat and drink first. So that if there was any poison in it, he would be gone, the king would remain alive. And one of the things you never did in those days is to go into the presence of the king looking sad. Because if you do, it would be the last day you live. And the king looked at Nehemiah and he said to him, Why are you sad? You have never been this way before. And I love this. Nehemiah said, I immediately lifted my heart to God. That's his refuge. That's his sanctuary. A sanctuary is a place where you go for security, for protection. And what, what, what helps the Christian during the time of suffering is to know that he can go to the place with confidence. God has made a way so that whether we're in the presence of the king or whether we're in the presence of any other human being, we can go directly to God without any difficulty. I remember the story of the late President Johnson. He had some senators over to the White House for breakfast. And the Senate, one senator bowed his head to give thanks. And the president looked over at him and said, Senator, Senator, speak up. And the senator finished his prayer. And looked into the face of the president and said, with all due respect to you, sir, I wasn't speaking to you. <laughs> the access you and I have on the highway, in the classroom, at home, whatever the situation is, we have access. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18. I love this. Ephesians 2 and 18. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. You remember what Jesus teaching his disciples to pray when they pray? How do you pray? Begin by saying, Our Father. And the scripture says, Through Jesus Christ we have access by one spirit. We're assisted. Romans 8, 26 says when we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit comes and makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And because the Spirit knows the mind of the Father and the Father knows the mind of the Spirit, when He prays, God prays in you and in me. What a wonder. Access by prayer to God. Look, if you please, in Hebrews chapter 4. Well, I, re I said that before. I gave you that before. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In time of need. And oh, my friends, which of us in this place is not needy this morning? 
one way or another, like I said. If we're not needed, we know someone who is. If we're not needed, let us thank God that we're free from any pressures right now because believe me, we live in a fallen world. It will come. It will come. And so there we have the felicity of prayer, the facility of prayer. But I want you to see the tenacity of conviction. Look at how we go to God. When I, when I, I think I was t- telling someone else this morning, uh, not this morning, this week, when I was in college and I was in, in class studying Introduction to Clinical Counseling, I remember the, the professor was telling us about being free with God, and, and he asked for some examples of what it means to be free. And I'll never forget this girl said, I am so free with God I can even swear at him. <laughs> wow. No, my friends, freedom is not freedom to do what I want. The boldness is not that we go saying to God, please listen to me now. Boldness means without inhibition. We can go to God with simplicity. I love the little girl praying. And she was saying, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, and father said, what are you doing? And he said, she said, I'm praying. And he said, you're just repeating the alphabet. She said, yeah, but God knows how to put all the letters together and make them words and know what I want. <laughs> Tenacity of faith. The conviction that because of my relationship with Christ, even when I do not see answers as I want them, God does hear me. Because I have access to him and the grounds on which I come is not to tell God what I think he ought to do. I I found myself doing this this past week. I found myself praying. And I said to God, (laughs) I said to God, I did. Lord, please uh, do this, do this, do this because of this. And I said, Winston, just a minute. Are Are you praying to inform God? Are you praying to inform God? You know, it's, it's one of those wonderful things. Um, well, I better not get off on that. I'll leave it alone. Let me tell you what, what I mean by the tenacity of faith. I was at a banquet Thursday night, and on the screen came some wonderful things of the future as far as technology is concerned. I had not seen that one before. And, and, and it showed what our world will be like by 2013, 2015, 2020, whatever the case might be. And I sat there and I thought, this is wonderful. To live in a world. You know, I, I, was, I was in Toronto, as you know, visiting. And uh, one of my friends, I sat in his living room. And he said, okay, Winston, where do you live? And I told him where I live. And he took his, his machine. <laughs> and, and he just went, and he said, there's your house. I was in Toronto. Wow. It was fascinating. I went to buy a... a one of the things you take and push in the side of your laptop to get your messages, put them, well, they're called thumb something, 
And, and so the guy said, you have an eight megabyte? I said, I don't like dogs. I want you to know. I don't want to buy anything that's going to bite me. So I, I have this for my daughter because she does some work for me. And, and, and so I took it to her and just a little thing like that. And she says, this is what you can store in that. And I thought, how fascinating. Listen, friends, listen. No matter how technologically advanced we get, we will never be able to live without faith in God. Because the more technological we become, the less need there is for faith. We can do a lot of things without, quote-unquote, believing in God. And God has, has, has given us this ability. I'll speak about this some more next week. I want to thank God for my mind because whatever this mind is able to calculate is because God has given it to me as a gift. And as I use it for Him by my faith in Christ, I can use it for the good of God and the glory of God and the good of others. But I tell you, if we get to the place, as one guy said, if I have an electric razor, why do I need faith? What he simply mean was this. I have means of doing things. Why do I need to trust God? The conviction. And I'm, I want to say to you, friends, that even in the church, as I speak to you, there are people who are believing less and less in the Bible than they are 10, 15 years ago. I can give you stats on that. But listen to what the Lord, what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Now there abide faith and hope and love. The three qualities that we need to live and to live with one another and to live with hope is faith and hope and love. And we can have all the technology and I'm fascinated by them. But let us remember, friends, that when it comes to our relationship with God, it's not technology, it's relationship. It's relationship. The tenacity of faith. We don't believe less and less in Christ because we know more and more technologically. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. Listen to what this text reads. Fascinating verse of scripture. Hebrews 10 and 19. Reads this way. Therefore, brethren... Since we have confidence to enter the holy place, that is where God is, by the blood of Jesus. I don't have any claim upon God, but what His Son has done for me. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. We don't use Jesus' name as, an, as, as kind of a magic thing. It is the one who gives us access to the Father and we go to Him and we can take to Him that which is our burden. Well, thirdly, the servitude of suffering. Suffering becomes a servant for the Apostle Paul. Now look at verse 13 of our text. Imagine this. Four years in prison. The Ephesians are enjoying life to the fullest. Paul is in prison, and so he writes in verse 13. 
Therefore, I ask you not to faint or lose heart because of my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. <laughs> you get that? Look, look, first of all, the sufferer becomes the encourager. Here's Paul now, four years in prison. The Ephesians are hearing about his suffering, and they are really saddened by it. And Paul said, don't. Don't get sad. Let, let, let me tell you what I have been doing. What I've been doing when in prison. Let, let me quickly take you there. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Quickly. And I'll try to wrap this up. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. <laughs> Verse 4. Look at this. I, I wonder if the man was real. You remember, what, you remember what the first man said? I don't see any, how anyone can find any purpose in suffering. Listen to St. Paul. Great is my confidence in you. He was encouraged by other saints. Great is my boasting on your behalf. Now listen to the rest of it. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy at my party. Is that what it says? No. I am overflowing with joy in all my affliction. Now that doesn't make sense, does it? Someone has put it this way. Virtue in, dis in distress and vice in triumph makes atheists of mankind. Virtue in distress, vice in triumph make atheists of mankind. See what Paul is saying? Because I am related to God and because I know that God has a purpose, I know that four years here is not a waste of my life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, as sorrowful, always rejoicing. In Colossians 1, 24, I rejoice in my suffering for you. <laughs> he... he He's not at the mercy of Rome. He's living with an overabundance from God to see his suffering as a means of blessing others. Uh, you know, I thought of that. And those of you who go to visit Stan know this. You go to visit Stan. And here's a man who has not walked on his own for uh, I don't know how many years. Here's a man who, who, who has sores in places you know, too embarrassed to even talk about. And yet when you go to visit that man, I have never heard one word of complaint from that man. Not one word. I learn more about Sotoville while I go visit him. It's a remarkable thing. Is he putting on a front? No, friends. He has the conviction of faith in Christ. And when no human words can interpret his suffering, he can interpret his suffering in the light of God's purposes. So the, 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 the sufferer becomes the encourager. We have access to God. Please hear me here, friends. When we're going through sufferings, we do not only need to ask people to pray for us, we need to be with people who pray for us. 
That's what Paul is saying. I, 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 want, I want you to know what it means not only to have you praying. We shall see this later on. But he's able to encourage them from where he is in prison. He says, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't think that I'm going through this and I need pity. I'm not even pitying myself. He's not focused on his circumstances. He's focused upon the purposes of God. And you and I need to learn that. I say you and I, not you, you and I. You know, I, I, I keep thinking of this. You know that our son has the opportunity to go to Cambodia or to the Dominican Republic. And if you know anything about Cambodia, you choose the Dominican Republic. And I had to ask myself, I had to ask myself and answer the question, do you think that what happens in Cambodia couldn't happen in the Dominican Republic? I remember when I was in Jamaica, I was there speaking for two weeks, and they had a riot there, and the planes were grounded, and I thought, what am I going to do? And I mean, the biggest thing for me was getting out of that place. <laughs> I couldn't think that God had me there for any purpose. <laughs> but he did. He did. Paul was availing himself of access to God in his suffering so that he could encourage others in spite of what he was going through. And that's what we need to do, friends. That's what we need to do. Lastly, the sufferer becomes the educator. For they are your glory. What I am going through will benefit you. I thought of this again. Can you believe that my suffering has benefits for somebody else? But that's what St. Paul said. That's what the Bible teaches. Many times we think only of ourselves. Why am I going through this? Why is this happening to me? And that's the wrong question, friends. It's the wrong question whether it comes from your lips or mine. The deepest question we need to ask is, Lord, what are your purposes behind what I am going through? Give me grace to endure it. Give me grace to interpret it. In 1956, five missionaries, one of them from Portland, Oregon, were killed. The world stopped. I wasn't, a, I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I remember hearing it. My sister was, and she had the radio station HCJB listening to the news when the word was given. And the whole Christian world was stunned at these five young men giving up their lives as they did. Nobody, nobody could see any purpose behind that. I want to remind you, friends, that during that time and the next 10 years, more missionaries were sent from North America to the ends of the earth than at any other time in history. Their, their sacrifice, their death, became the voice of God for young people in Christian universities all across the country to say, Lord, here I am, send me. Paul said, my suffering is for your sake. I rejoice in my suffering for you. 
because I know that God has a purpose behind it and he is such a good God. He's such a great God. He's such a loving God. He's such a wise God that he will make no mistakes in designing your suffering, carrying it out, and seeing you through to the other side. Let us pray. Oh God, it is so easy to speak about something you have not experienced yourself. But I pray that your word, having taught us how to respond to it, that if and when it does happen, like St. Paul, we will avail ourselves of our access to God so that we are able to bless others and to rejoice over others because we understand that what we are going through will benefit somebody else for the glory of God and our eternal good. In Jesus' name.